So was Jesus then some kind of economics guru then uh, in this passage? That last phrase there that uh, whoever has will be given more and whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. I mean, that sounds a bit like what we all know, don't we? That the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Or as Leonard Cohen put it, everyone knows the fight is fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes and everybody knows. It's a kind of economic law. We see plenty of that in our world today and even in our own country. And indeed, of course, uh, not only do we see it around us, Jesus himself did have things to say about that. In the Gospels, he could talk uh, about the uh, the wickedness of, of the wealthy who wouldn't care for the poor and the suffering of the poor. Plenty in the Gospels about that. So it would have been quite easy to take that one little line and just go and talk about all of that this evening. But no, that isn't actually what Jesus is talking about here at all, uh, that economic inequality. In fact, Probably that last phrase in our passage was a well-known proverb of his day, which meant something like exactly what we were just thinking, but he's using it here in a very different kind of way. And we need to see the context in which these words are spoken, because here we are, we're in Mark's gospel, we've been here for some time now here at All Souls, if you've been following us, series in Mark's gospel, and Mark's gospel gets off to a really cracking start. If you could just turn back a couple of pages in your Bible to chapter 1, you'll find that it's all about who's coming and what's coming, which is actually a pretty good theme for today, which as we've heard several times is Advent Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent. I mean, take a quick look uh, there in chapter 1, verse 2, we read that there's a messenger coming who's announcing that the Lord is coming. So get ready, prepare his way. And then in verse 4, John the Baptist comes, but in verse 7, he says that somebody else is coming after him who's even more powerful. And then in verse 9, Jesus comes. He came into Galilee, announcing uh, then through the God the Father, as Rico just said, that he's the Son of God. And then by verse 15, we read that Jesus comes into Galilee, preaching that the kingdom of God has come, and that that's good news that the people should enjoy. So there's lots and lots of comings and expectations going on in these early chapters of Mark, especially that the kingdom of God has come. Well, what on earth is that all about? Well, we're going to be thinking a bit more about that next week as it happens, so I'll not say much more about it right now, except that basically it means that God is on the move. God is coming in power. God is about to show up as the true king that he really is. All those promises that were made back in the scriptures of the Old Testament, they're all coming true. It's all happening because Jesus is here. And then what? Well, to be honest, it all gets a bit confusing, doesn't it, in the next couple of chapters? I mean, Jesus? Jesus, who was actually a very common name at that time. We only know one Jesus now, but in those days, lots of people called Jesus. Who's this Jesus? Well, he's from Nazareth. That's a nowhere sort of place up in the north. And he's hanging around in Galilee in the north with all these fishermen. I mean, why is he not down in Jerusalem? Dealing with Herod and the Romans if the kingdom of God has come. In fact, what's really worrying is that some of his best mates are actually tax collectors who are working for the Roman Empire, for goodness sake. Stooges of Rome. And yet, on the other hand, 
he is doing some pretty amazing stuff in these chapters. There's all these healings, and some of the crowds really love him. They're hanging on every word. His teaching is pretty astonishing. And yet, the religious leaders, they hate him. They actually want to kill him, we read in chapter 3. And his family, his family think he's mad. So, I mean, is this really the kingdom of God? Is this the way that God comes as king in this strange, rather hidden, puzzling, unspectacular sort of way? God is now king? What, with no armies? No seizure of power? No glorious revolution? Just Jesus of Nazareth and his teaching and all his claims? I mean, who is this man? Well, that question, who is this man, is the question that actually ends chapter 4. Can you see it there at the very end of the chapter? After Jesus had commanded the winds and waves of a storm at sea on Galilee to be still, and they did, and only God can command the wind and the waves, and the disciples are terrified, and they ask that very question, who is this guy, Jesus? Who indeed? So in Between those first three chapters and that end of chapter 4, Mark records Jesus addressing all that confusion and discouragement of the followers of Jesus at the time. And he does it first of all, as we saw over the last couple of weeks, with a parable of the sower and the soils. And as you may remember, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, Will Steinman is explaining that Jesus was basically sifting those who were hanging around and following him uh, and basically distinguishing between those who truly would come and hear and accept his word and repent and believe the gospel and become his followers. And on the other hand, those who wouldn't really uh, follow a little while and then fall away. And then last week, if you were here, you remember Rico talking about the parable of, well, four different sort of soils that the seed fell into, but really only two kinds of soil. It was the productive, deep-rooted soil in which the seed could grow and bear fruit, and there was the unproductive, three types, but all unproductive. And what makes the crucial difference in these stories. And there it is, can you see, in verse 9, when Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And that's repeated again. He says it again in verse 23, and it comes again in verse 24. Consider carefully what you hear. In fact, it begins in verse 3 when he says, listen up. It's the same verb. And again in chapter, in verse 33, where we read that he was speaking to them as much as they could understand, says our Bibles, with the word again is as much as they could hear and take without listening. And that's the reason for our title. That's the reason why I've given this talk that you can see on the screen. When God shows up, pay attention. When Jesus is speaking, listen up. When I was a little boy, my mother, one of my memories of her often saying to me was, do you hear me, Christopher? Yes, yes, mum. Well, then heed me, she would say. Do you hear me? Then heed me. If you're listening, don't walk away, just do what I'm saying. That's sort of what Jesus is saying here. Do you hear me? Then hear me. The kingdom of God has come. But it's not come in the way you might have been expecting or imagining. But it is here. Jesus is saying, it's here because I am here. And so you need to pay attention to me, he's saying, to my words, to my deeds, and 
by the time we get to the end of this gospel, to my death on the cross and my resurrection, come, listen to me, learn from me, obey me, follow me, is what Jesus is saying. But Jesus, you know, it all seems a bit hidden, don't you think? I mean, people don't even seem to know who you are. There's a lot of confusion in this chapter. Who is this Jesus? And when will we really see the kingdom of God in reality? If God really is in control, isn't there more to it than just this? So that's the kind of questioning and anxiety that lies behind these words of Jesus. The first words in verses 21 and 22. Can you see them again? Jesus said, Do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. And whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. In other words, there's always more to Jesus than meets the eye. And that's the first of the two points from the two main sayings of Jesus in this passage that we want to look at. There's always more to Jesus than meets the eye. Now, Jesus was brilliant at using everyday experiences or objects or situations to drive home the message that he was teaching. But he doesn't always use them in the same way. And that, I think, is the case with this illustration here of a lamp. See, according to Matthew, Jesus used this uh, idea on another occasion. This is, let me read it to you, it's in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said to his disciples, you, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp, the little oil lamp that was used in the house, the tiny little lamp, and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so that it can give light to everyone in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So that's Jesus on that occasion using the little lamp as a picture of what we are supposed to be as the light of the world. But here, it's different. In this case, it's much more like that song that we were singing a little bit earlier, which, by the way, I didn't choose, but was amazingly appropriate to what we're reading right here. Because here, this lamp clearly refers to Jesus himself. The actual words that Jesus said, as Mark wrote them, slightly different from the way they're translated, but what he actually said was, does the lamp, the lamp, come in in order to be put under a bucket or under a bed. No, it comes in order to be placed on the lampstand. Jesus is the one who has come, the light of the world, as John will say, and as we were singing a minute ago. And because Jesus has come, God has come in Jesus, the light of the Lord himself, and the reign of God has begun in Jesus, even if it seems hidden and veiled and obscured at the moment, like a lamp being put under a bed, as it were. But, says Jesus, not forever, indeed not for long, because God's intention, and indeed Jesus' own intention, was that it would ultimately be fully revealed, his true identity as the Messiah, as the Lord, as God, as the Savior, to the amazement and the surprise and the joy of those who would recognize and receive him. And indeed, that's what Mark's whole gospel is doing. Uh, If you read it right through, it's a kind of unveiling of this veiled, concealed Jesus who bit by bit is revealed as who he is. He has come in order 
to be revealed. This is Advent, and it will soon be Christmas, and I expect over the next few weeks we're going to be buying and getting presents and things ready. Now, when you wrap up your Christmas presents, do you intend for them to stay wrapped up there at the back of a wardrobe or under the tree? No, of course not. You wrap them up in order for them to be unwrapped, in order for the surprise and the joy of those who are going to receive them. The whole point of the concealing is the joy of the revealing. And you see, that is sort of what Jesus is getting at here, that part of the mystery and the wonder of what is happening at this beginning stage of the gospel, including the very birth of Jesus himself, is that God concealed is the God who is going to be revealed for who he truly is in Jesus. God concealed even in the womb of Mary. As Graham Kendrick's song puts it, From heaven you came, helpless babe, entered our world, your glory veiled. Yet, this is our God, the servant king. Or as Charles Wesley put it much earlier in that wonderful hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Glory to the newborn king. But it's a glory who, which would be seen even in the Gospels and in the New Testament. Some would recognize it, even though it was conceived. For example, uh, early on in the story of, of the Gospels, we meet Simeon. And he held this little baby Jesus in his arms, only perhaps a few days old, but he saw in this baby the one who would be the light to the nations and for the glory of his people Israel. And then there was Peter, James, and John. They climbed a mountain one day with this Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter's son who they'd walked around with for quite a while. And they climbed and they huffed and puffed up to the top of the mountain. And there they saw the true Jesus transfigured in glorious splendor and whiteness, brighter than the sun. And again, the voice of God the Father saying, this is my son, listen to him. And at the end of Mark's gospel, when you get to the cross, there's a Roman centurion standing there who had probably supervised the work. And what he saw was not just yet another crucified Jew bleeding and gasping to death. But Mark tells us that when he saw how Jesus died, he said, surely this was the Son of God. And that's where Mark's gospel has been leading all this way. Or what about those crowds in Jerusalem and the Jewish authorities in the book of Acts? Do you remember after Jesus had risen from the dead uh, and uh, their Pentecost had come and Peter addresses them and he says to them, now look, you handed this Jesus over to be killed. You disowned him, the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. You thought that you'd put this lamp right under a bucket and it snuffed it out completely, dead concealed, buried in the tomb. But no, says Peter, that wasn't God's intention. God has raised him from the dead, and the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus, and this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Messiah. That's who you're looking at. That's who's here. Or think of Saul of Tarsus. For him, when he'd first heard about this Jesus, even perhaps never actually seen or 
in the flesh in his earthly lifetime. But for him, Jesus was just a dangerous, deluded, false messiah who was threatening everything that Saul of Tarsus believed in. But after Saul met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, in a light that was a lot brighter than any little oil lamp, brighter than the light of the sun, we're told, so much that it blinded him. This is what Saul of Tarsus, now the apostle Paul, could tell us about Jesus. Listen to these words, would you? This is Jesus, the Son of God. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness, all the fullness of God dwell in him, Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things in heaven and on earth by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's Jesus unwrapped. Jesus, that wrapped baby in a feeding trough, is the cosmic Lord of all creation and the supreme governor of all history. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. So are you listening? This is the Jesus who was veiled, but is now revealed in his glory. See, it's so easy it is very easy to have a somewhat superficial, rather childish kind of view of Jesus to keep him, you know, a little bit under wraps. He's just the baby in the manger at Christmas time, and that's awfully nice in the nativity plays and all that. Or maybe a bit more seriously, that is quite an interesting figure in the history of world religions and so on. But that's not the real Jesus of the Gospels. The Gospels, the Jesus of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the one who is now the ruler of the kings of the earth, as he calls himself in the book of Revelation. Don't be satisfied with a superficial understanding of Jesus. There's always more to Jesus than meets the eye, or that you may have ever thought of yet. And if you haven't yet discovered something of that truth and that fullness of Jesus, then make sure that you do. Listen to these testimonies of our sisters and brothers who said how they found Jesus and have found him to be the totality of all that they need, as Cordelia so beautifully said. Well, that brings us to the second part of what Jesus says here. So now let me read those other two sayings that he says from verse 24 and 25. Jesus went on to say, Consider carefully what you hear, he continued, because with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. And even more. So whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And what I've called this is that there's always more to learn from Jesus than you have already. So when you come to Jesus, take a shovel, not a teaspoon. There's always more to receive. Now these two sayings of Jesus that come uh, in these two verses... Were, well, I was going to say probably, we actually know that they were proverbs already uh, in the Jewish world of Jesus' time. 
they were used particularly in relation to the study of the law, that is God's law, the Torah, the scriptures of what we now call the Old Testament. Uh, And when the teachers of the law would be trying to encourage and train their disciples, they would say, well, there's so much to learn, there's there's so much to do, but the more diligent you are in studying it and learning it and reading and obeying it, then the more you're going to receive from it. Uh, The more you will understand the ways of God and know him and be blessed by him and so on. So they use these kind of sayings as that sort of encouragement. It's a bit like two of our fairly popular proverbs, you know how we sometimes say, you only get out of it what you put into it. You know, we say that sometimes like things like sports training. You know, if you really want to be a good sport, you have to put a lot in if you're going to get anything out. Or perhaps some of the musicians would tell us that that's very true of any kind of musical performance or skill. You only get what you put in. Or belonging to a club or a society. You know, what do you want to get? Well, you, you only get out what you're prepared to put in, in a sense. And the other saying is a little bit like when we sometimes talk about use it or lose it. You know, about bodily health or physical fitness. You've either got to use what you've got by way of your bodily strength, or in the end it will wither. You know, use it and it'll get stronger, but be lazy and you lose even what you think you had. And Jesus is saying that there's something in our spiritual lives in relation to him and his teaching, which is a bit like that. And so you make a start with Jesus. These people were beginning to accept him and beginning to uh, accept and understand him and the kingdom of God. But Jesus says, you know, there's so much more to learn and to receive from me. And I think the first thing is that that's a wonderful word for Sammy and Sam and Cordelia and Pearl who stood before us. Wasn't that wonderful testimonies to hear them say those things? To say, yes, this is wonderful, and particularly for Sammy, that this is the beginning, this is just the start of a whole journey with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's so much more to learn from him, to receive from him, to be blessed by him. There was an old Christian farmer once, apparently, who was asked why he seemed to prosper so much. And he said, well, I shovel in my faith, and God shovels in his blessing. But he's got a bigger shovel. And when it comes to listening and learning from Jesus, as I said, take a shovel, not a teaspoon. Listen, learn, grow, receive. There's always more to learn and to receive all through life. But I think there's a word here also, not just for our dear sisters and brothers who were baptized and confirmed their baptism vows this morning. There's also a word for those of us who are kind of, you know, long-term Christians. We've been coming to church maybe for years. And I just wonder, are you still coming to receive more and willing in that sense to put in the effort uh, and, and coming with that shovel to receive as much as you can possibly get from the Lord? Hungry, wanting to grow and to learn and to see what God is doing and giving in the kingdom of God. Because you see, there's echoes here of what Jesus had said in verse 11, where if you just look down, Jesus had said to his disciples and to those who were following him seriously, he said, look, to you has been given something. You've been given an understanding of the kingdom of God. You you get it. You, you have begun to grasp what it means to follow Jesus and to trust him, to repent of your sins and to believe the gospel. Uh, but that's not just a blessing. It's a responsibility to go on receiving and sharing. The measure you use will be the measure that you receive. And more, because God is no one's debtor. 
God will always give us more. So I ask that question. What measure do you use to invest in your Christian life and Christian growth? Is the measure you use for your Christianity, your, your faith, your, your personal faith in Jesus, is that measure anything like the measure that you use to invest in your career or your home and family or your sports club or whatever passion or hobby you might have? What size of a receptacle do you bring when it comes to learning from Jesus and from the scriptures? When you come to church, as we've just all done to this building, what's your mental attitude? What is the way in which you come? Sometimes people ask me a question because I'm one of the preaching team. Uh, and they say that, you know, do, do, when you sit in the audience, when you're not preaching, you sit there, are you, do you listen to other people preaching their sermons with a kind of critical ear, thinking to yourself, well, I could do better than that, you know? And I have to say, genuinely, no. I mean, of course, you know, we're all different preachers, we preach in different ways, and those of us who are on the preaching team and meet regularly every Tuesday at Preacher's Breakfast, we know that we have lots to learn, uh, that we always strive to help one another, to do better. But when I come to church to sit in the congregation, I want to hear God. And I want to hear him not just in the preaching of the word, of course then, but also in the songs and the readings, the world, the music that we hear, because we know that our musicians, and our choir, they, they pray about what they sing and what they lead us with. They're wanting us to hear God through what they say and sing, and as we sing it with them. And when we open the scriptures together and someone preaches, I look forward, I deliberately try to say, what is God wanting to say here in this passage? Because I want to be fed, I want to be encouraged, I, I need God to take me back into next week and its work. Sometimes I want to be challenged or to be strengthened, whatever it is that God is saying. And I wonder if that's you. Is that the way you are seeing your membership of church and coming week by week to receive more and more and more of what God will give you? But, you know, we need to realize that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God here. And the kingdom of God is much bigger than what just happens in church. Because God is at work in the world. And we'll think a little bit more about this next week. God reigns. He's not just in the church. Jesus, as I said, is the ruler of the kings of the earth. So the challenge also to us is, are we looking for God and listening for God in our everyday lives, out there in the world, when we go back on a Monday to a Friday? When we look at what's happening in the world around us, the immediate surroundings of our home or our family or our workplace, or the national and international arena, are we looking for those signs of the kingdom of God and listening for his voice and saying, God, what are you doing? What are you saying in my circumstances? The trouble is in our culture that as Christians, we're so surrounded a bit like exiles in a strange land in a, a culture where God, the very idea of God, where we don't do God anymore. God's no longer part of everyday life or custom except on exceptional occasions like the Queen's funeral. But otherwise, basically, God has sort of disappeared from the public arena, and we let that happen. I've just been reading a book recently by a Dutch scholar called Stefan Pass. It's called Pilgrims and Priests, Christian Mission in a Post-Christian Society. And I thought this was rather good. I thought I'd just read it to you. He said, once, once God lived just around the corner, now it seems that he has left for parts unknown. In the cultural exile of Christianity in the West, 
we fear that this is no longer God's world. He's turned a deaf ear. God has withdrawn from the world. And gradually but certainly he disappears also from our thoughts and our considerations. We may sometimes feel him in the depths of our soul or in church. But the absence of God in daily life seems a fact. Thus, the secularization of our imagination follows the secularization of society. And this inability to see God working in the ordinary and the mundane means that we look at the world as if God is no longer at work there. We think he's just dropped us off in Babylon and then abandoned us. And it's up to us to find our way back to Jerusalem, he says. But it was Jeremiah who told those exiles in Babylon that God was there with them, that they could hear his voice, that they could see him at work. And so again, I want to challenge us. Do you bring the God questions into everyday life and work? Where do I see the hand of God? What is God saying to me in this thought, this idea that I've had, this, this moment, this opportunity, this conversation, these impulses, these odd things that just seem to happen? Are we mindful of God? We talk a lot about mindfulness these days. Are we alert and awake and listening for God? in our lives day by day. I think Jesus is saying something like that when he reminds us of himself being there and the kingdom of God being at work. And so that brings us, therefore, to our final thought. God is at work. Jesus is speaking. But are we listening? If anyone has ears to hear, said Jesus, let them hear. Let's pray as our musicians return to lead us in the final song. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are here present with us this evening as we've gathered in your name to sing your praises and to hear your word. And we ask that as you've been speaking to us in whatever way you have spoken through your spirit, we pray that those of us who have ears to hear may indeed hear and listen up and not only hear you but heed you for your name's sake and for your glory. Amen.